you know, you know, sneak up on anybody or play any kind of pranks. What we want to do is be able to give a visual testimony. Everybody say those two words with me. Visual testimony. We want to give a visual testimony to all that God is doing. Not just celebrating baptisms and new members and babies that are being dedicated. And obvious things like that where we want to take pictures, but... Sometimes moments in our worship and just seeing God do that, we, we want to be able to be able to put that up on the screen and let you see the impact of the work of the Holy Spirit in this church. And so we just are so appreciate it. When you see them coming around, that's what that's about. And so we're trying to capture a moment and be able to give a visual testimony of what God is doing in our midst here. Somebody say amen. amen. So this morning, as we jump in, this is a new series today. I am, with all of my heart, excited about uh, this book in the New Testament, it is my favorite book of the Bible, and uh, there are three ways that we could do this, and, I, and let me just say that my, my dear friend of 35 years emailed me this week, David McDaniel said, title, subject line said, who are you kidding? And I opened it, and he said, it's going to take you two years to get through the book of Ephesians, who are you kidding? <laughs> let me just say that um, Martin Luther said that Romans is by far the most important book of the New Testament because it lays out the legal understanding of justification by grace through faith alone. And, um, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my heroes. He was the pastor of Westminster Abbey in London, England in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And he's a tremendous, one of the best writers that I have ever read in biblical studies. He wrote an eight-volume series. I read chapter one this week. There was one whole book dedicated to Ephesians chapter 1. It's 414 pages long. And uh, so one chapter in Ephesians, he wrote a book of 400, over 400 pages. So uh, he said it this way. He said, if Martin Luther said Romans was the most important book, then Ephesians by far is the sublimest. And that is a big picture. We, we're going to sort of ascend the Alps of the New Testament, okay? Let's make it American and we'll talk about the Rockies. And we're not talking about the hills of the Ozarks. We're talking about serious mountain peaks where we get a big picture bird's eye view of God's perspective and his purpose. The title of the message this morning is called The Architect uh, and His Plans, God's Design. The Architect and His Plans, God's Design. I'd like if you would please to stand with me. Let's grab a hold of our text which we will be reading each week. It is one verse only. The title of the message is called Built. And so we begin today with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Read out loud with me. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. One more time. Read it like you mean it. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer. Spirit of God, thank you for your work right now in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for what you did in eternity past. You marked our lives. Son of God, thank you for what you did in time and space and in history. You wrapped it up and paid the price and said it is finished. Holy Spirit, thank you that you were at work involved intimately in the lives of these people that are in this room this morning and people that are listening some point in the future on the Internet. We ask you right now, Spirit of God, that you open our eyes, even as Paul prayed in this passage we're going to open today, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let our hearts be made alive because of the word of truth, the gospel that we have believed. Thank you today for that promise. I just acknowledge that I cannot do anything apart from you, but I'm thrilled that I'm not apart from you, that I am in Christ Jesus and Christ is in me. And Christ is in the people in this room. And we love you. We acknowledge you. Be Lord in this service. Be Lord of our lives. Be Lord over our families and over our community and over this nation and over the whole earth. Be Lord. It is in your name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. She went down in history as America's greatest miser. Her name was Hetty Green. She died in 1916 with an estate valued at over $100 million. She ate oatmeal cold because it cost to heat it. Her son suffered a leg amputation because she delayed in medical care looking for a free clinic. This woman was wealthy beyond 
description. This is 100 years ago. 1916, died with an estate worth over $100 million. She was a wealthy woman by every definition of the word wealth, but yet she lived like a pauper. I think that this is a perfect illustration of the way the majority of Christians live in the world today. We have unlimitless wealth at our disposal, but yet we choose to live as if we had nothing. We live far, 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 far beneath the means which Jesus Christ died to provide for us to live in. This is not a TV preacher prosperity kind of message, although I will tell you there are some folks who could probably use that mitigated in a restrained kind of way, especially if they've been baptized in a poverty gospel their whole lives. I'm not going to stop to chase that rabbit. I just want to preach the gospel. The gospel that at times will speak to our poverty and will raise us up in the valley of our lack and despair. And it will also speak to our prosperity when we trust in it and it will bring the mountain down low so that the crooked place can be made plain and the glory of the Lord can be revealed. As we look to the book of Ephesians, I'm preaching this from the perspective of built because God builds a temple in chapter 2, He builds a family in chapter 3, He builds a body in chapter 4, He builds a bride in chapter 5, and He builds an army in chapter 6. And so six weeks we're going to use the flyover principle, three ways we could teach this, this message. We can fly over and give you a beautiful view from the top of the Rocky Mountains these great peaks which literally describe the grandeur of God's sovereignty and His majesty and His gifts of grace and peace and wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. We could get in a car and we could drive through the Rockies and we could take longer and be able to get a little bit more specific view of some of the details, but yet there is another way that we could actually explore the Rockies. We could actually hike and travel the paths the trails, and we could climb the face of the mountains. That's when we would take two years to preach Ephesians. Because we don't have the luxury of hiking the paths, and we're not even going to take the time of driving in the car through the Rockies. Six weeks, we're going to actually be flying over this amazing book in the New Testament. I took the picture that we're using as the graphic on a trip to Nashville about three years ago. It is a beautiful pedestrian bridge in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, crossing over the Cumberland River. You have that on the front of your notes this morning. Um, just a, an amazing, beautiful place, well-lighted at night, uh, very romantic, great place to take the one that you love and stand out there and look at downtown Nashville and, and enjoy your time together. Uh, we were scrambling, trying to find something to depict this, and at the last minute I remembered, hey, I've got this beautiful picture so we decided to use that, and Heather superimposed the word built over that. And so we begin today with the book of Ephesians. We've talked about wealth. It uses phrases that are very financial and economical in the, the text. It talks about an earnest, earnest money, a guarantee for a down payment. It talks about an inheritance. The word fullness and filled are both economic financial terms in this passage. Uh, is it what Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. If we divided the book in, into two sections, it would be chapters 1 through 3 would be doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 would be application. Chapters 1 through 3 would describe how rich you are in Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 would show you how responsible you are to use all of those heavenly riches properly. Everybody say rich and responsible. Again, say rich and responsible. All right, we're not going to preach that three and three, but I'm going to go one chapter at a time. We're going to talk about all the things that God is building. And I have one statement that I want to make, and I want to, I want to make this memorable for you. So, guys, if you would put that statement up for me, please. It's found emboldened in your notes. Read it out loud with me. God is a builder who designed the plan, oversees the job, and will complete the work. This is a strangely crafted grammatical statement if you've looked at it, if you caught it, we've got three different tenses there. God is a builder who what? What tense is designed? Past tense. Who oversees the job. What tense is oversees? Okay, beautiful. So present. And then finally, will complete the work. What tense is that? We have God who is operating in every aspect, eternity past, 
history to the present, and everything that is in the future that concerns your life, God is actively involved in drawing up the plan, in overseeing the job, and faithfully completing the work in your life. God begun a good work. God began a good work of salvation. My favorite verse, it's my life verse, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, until I behold him face to face and I see him as he is. I have the promise that God the Holy Spirit will be about the business of finishing the work in me. What God planned before I was ever born, what Jesus appropriated and provided for me at the cross by paying the bill, the Holy Spirit now is actively involved on the job site doing the work. This is the job site. You are the job site. You are the purchased possession. So this morning as we jump into this, we're going to take about a minute as, as much as possible. I'm going to try my best to do about one minute per uh, verse. Some of them will be a little bit more. Some of them will be a little bit less. Let me give you a little bit of background about the, about the, the, um, the, the city of Ephesus. It is found in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, at the time. The Apostle Paul was otherwise known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. He gives his whole lineage and his history in Philippians chapter 3, probably named after, because he was from a prominent family, probably named after the first king of Israel who was Saul. The name Saul literally means demanded. And so like Saul of the Old Testament, Saul of Tarsus was a very outward, aggressive kind of personality who sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was trained to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And when this whole new sect of Judaism, which is now being called Christianity, comes along, Paul is ahead of the anti-Christian movement. He's walking around with a, wa- a pocket full of warrants taking the lives of Christians at the very most and at the very least hauling them in before the Roman government. Acts chapter 7, we find a young man who was holding the coats while the other people took their coats off so that they could pick up their rocks and stone Stephen. Paul was holding the coats. He's aggressively pursuing Christians. He hates Christians. He wants to preserve the way of the Hebrews. And a strange thing happens on the way to Damascus. God appears to him. Jesus Christ appears to him and knocks him off of his donkey. He gets arrested and captured, but not the way you think. He got arrested and captured by Jesus Christ. And so he sees and becomes an eyewitness of the resurrected living Christ. And it's an amazing transformational story. Literally the picture of how God does salvation in every one of your lives. You were all going your own way, riding on the back of, a, of, a, of, a, of an animal that speaks itself of stubbornness and rebellion. And God, boom, somehow in some kind of way, through a gospel preacher or through a song on a radio or through a friend who shared the gospel, who witnessed to you, boom, lights come on and darkness begins to dispel And all of a sudden you see world and life in a whole different kind of way. And that's exactly what God did to Saul who now has a new name, Paul. Saul means demanded. Paul means restrained and little. It's wonderful how God will get a hold of somebody who in one way of their lives God takes it and turns it around and he he bridles. He puts a bit in the bridle in the mouth of Paul so to speak. And God rides the ministry of this apostle, this sent one with a commission to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Ephesus is a worldly city. It is a very wealthy city. It is known at this time in history as the Bank of Asia. Interestingly enough, Paul would talk about in the book of Ephesians all of these issues related to wealth and riches and earnest and inheritance and all of these economic terms. Paul speaks to them because they were terms that these people would understand. It was heavily in Influenced by the Greek culture, it was ruled in the Roman Empire. So the Apostle Paul, in one of his three journeys, when you read the book of Acts, you need to realize that Acts is like the big summary of all the other stuff that comes after it. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Then you've got all these little bitty books there that you kind of stumble around and get confused about. And for the people that are new to the Bible, there's a real easy way you can remember that. Once you get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... 
then Acts, and then Romans, First and Second Corinthians. You've got all these little bitty books there. And, and it's, if you can, everybody say, General Electric Power Company. Okay, so that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, G-E-P-C, General Electric Power Company. If that's too boring for you, how about this one? Gentiles eat pork chops, <laughs> G-E-P-C, okay? So that's a way you can kind of find your way around what otherwise becomes a confusing group of letters, four to six chapters each typically, is the length. They're letters that the Apostle Paul is writing to these churches that he was instrumental in getting established on one of his three major journeys that you read about from Acts chapter 9 forward. We've got Peter is strong in the church and the council at Jerusalem with James, who is the, the pastor, and then Paul confronts Peter, and then we've got this separation, and, and Paul and Silas separate, Barnabas and Paul separate, and then we've got all of these different people doing moving different directions. Paul's three missionary journeys are talked about there in the book of Acts. And uh, once he, he visited very briefly, the second time he goes and his the church established, his evangelistic efforts have been very fruitful in the city of Ephesus. And a church is established and it's beginning to thrive. Paul stays there two years. There's a third missionary journey. To be honest, I don't remember exactly whether it was the second or the third one when he stayed two years. Somewhere around 52, 53 AD, he's there for a couple of years. Now, when we open this book right now, we're at between 60 and 62 A.D. So Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, has been in the heavens for 30 years, reigning from the right hand of the majesty on high. The Apostle Paul has been taking the gospel to the Gentiles for 30 years. He pleads his case and he ends up being shipped to Rome. And you remember Acts 27 and the whole shipwreck and all that stuff. And if you read through Acts, you find him in under house arrest in the city of Rome, chained between two praetorian guard, waiting a couple of years before he's going to plead his case, literally before Caesar himself. And so while he's sitting there, Paul is very busy. He, he writes what we call the prison epistles the prison epistles, the prison letters. He's sitting there chained between guards and he writes Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and a personal book to a guy by the name of Philemon. Ephesians is this very cosmopolitan city where everything is available that you can possibly imagine. It would be like a, a New York City or let's say maybe a, a Las Vegas Ephesians is into the occult. They're into witchcraft, into magic, and, and they have this major temple that is built in the city that a lot of business has built up around it. All of the silversmiths and the artisans are building little mini sculptures of Diana, which the whole city worships. It's called the Temple of Artemis. Great is Diana of the Ephesians was the chant that they screamed for two hours when Paul came and tur turned the city upside down and the gospel began to be preached and, and, and the Spirit of the Lord began to overtake and show people that they were worshiping dumb idols but there was a very real God and that He had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so all the folks that are in the business there are upset about it. It would be very similar to crossing the river and seeing the pyramid, now the lovely Bass Pro Shop we're all excited about. Or um, probably more like FedEx Forum, where you get in the grindhouse and you're cheering and you're screaming. We're all for the Grizzlies. Except if Ephesus is all about Diana, they're worshiping Diana. And so in the midst of this, God raises up a thriving, spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-anointed church. Miracles are happening. Lives are being transformed and changed. In the middle of all of this corruption and, and wrong culture headed the wrong way, God raises up a church through the efforts of a guy by the name Paul. And so Paul is sitting in prison in Rome and he's writing a letter to the Ephesians. And this is what he opens to say. He says, where, let me get there. I'm going to sit down. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Every one of Paul's letters opens with this kind of greeting. In America, when we used to write letters, we would address it to the person who we were writing, to whom we were writing, we would say, John blah, 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 body of the letter, sincerely, Michael Smith. You might not know who had written the letter until you read to the end and you find out. 
unless the postmark has the name and the return address on the outside, you don't know who's written the letter until you get to the end of the letter. Um, these Eastern letters were written with the tradition of beginning and saying who it's coming from. So every one of Paul's letters begins in this very same kind of way. Paul, an apostle. Everybody say apostle. The word simply means one who is sent with a commission, a messenger with a mandate. So God sends Paul. He is sent to the Gentiles. We're talking about non-Jewish people. The church at Ephesus was definitely a non-Jewish church. By the will of God, no explanation needed. The saints, it's written to the saints who are at Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. These are not two different groups. It's the same way of describing one group. And those are the people that are there in Ephesus. Now, let me just stop to tell you right now that what we have seen evolve throughout the years of church history in a very interesting Roman Catholic process called canonization, where we examine the life of someone who exemplified a holy lifestyle, and it may be a hundred years after they're dead that we study them historically and we ask questions and we confirm that they have actually... uh, uh, been able to perform two miracles at a minimum. I don't know where that came from. It's not biblical. As a matter of fact, this whole process is not biblical at all. It's very interesting, fascinating, but it's not biblical. And so we've come away with this idea that a saint is someone who's really lived a very long time in an extremely reserved, restrained, holy kind of life, and that's what a saint is. It's, it's John Paul II, whom I have great respect for. It's Mother Teresa, whom I also love and have respect for. Uh, But the idea that it's somebody who's recognized as such long after they're dead has nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible calls every person who has just been born of God, who trusts in Christ, from that moment you're called a saint. Look at your neighbor right now and say, Hello, saint. Now some of you are looking back at your spouse and you're going, He doesn't know that I live with you though. Saint. Say it. Come on, just say the word. Saint. I mean, it's like New Orleans. Saints. It's, you know, the Kajic Church in Memphis. The saints are coming to town. And we have a picture or a view or an idea. And, and, and as wonderful as all of those different kinds of ways are, I want to help you realize that you right now, not what you're going to be someday... But right now, God looks at you and He calls you a saint. Greek word literally means set apart. One who's been set apart from the world, set apart unto God. So we have a purpose. Um, Someone asked me at Purple Book this week, they said, Pastor, what does the phrase in the world but not of it mean? And so I, I... did what I thought was describing a decent description of that, but then later this week I, I really came to a good illustration that I felt like would describe this. In the world, physically, but not of it spiritually. It's like a scuba diver in the ocean. He literally is an alien in another environment that he was made for somewhere else, but he's able to exist and live and even thrive in there because he has special equipment. Now, as a believer, you are made for heaven. You've been born from above. Your citizenship, Philippians 3 says, is in heaven. You speak a heavenly language. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. But you are here alive on the planet, even though your citizenship is in heaven. Like the scuba diver, you exist here because you have special equipment. As the believer, that's the Holy Spirit. I mean, thankful for the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay? Apart from Him, you would not be able to. The faithful in Christ Jesus, very simply, faithful does not mean the secondary meaning as in trustworthy or somebody who's dependable, as in he is faithful to his job. He is faithful to his wife. It carries that, but that is not the primary meaning of what Paul is saying here. It is the meaning, very simply, of full of faith. Everybody say faithful means full of faith. So these people became saints because they believed God. They had faith and they were filled with faith. And it's found in the very next verse as we begin. Grace and peace to you. Everybody say grace. Now before I jump there, I want to grab the phrase in Christ Jesus. Because this is critical. We're going to find this phrase in Christ Jesus 27 times in the book of Ephesians. And it's the idea of identification. 
And, and, and a lot of times we, we are wrapped up in what Jesus did for us in substitution. He took our place. He died for me, the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. But now that I'm in Christ, I identify with Him. In the very same way that we were all in the loins of Adam, sinning with Him when He sinned. Therefore, the original sin has been part of our DNA. In Adam all die, but the Bible says, in Christ shall all be made alive. So there really are only two people on the planet. Adam, and who's the second one? Christ. Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So this morning, it's not about who I used to be in my past, but it's about who I am right now this morning in Christ Jesus. Now, there are plenty of places you can go, and they'll, they'll, they'll serve up in Adam to you every Sunday about how low down, no good, nothing but a worm you are. And they're preaching to a group of people that probably 90% of them, 95% of them, are saved and bought with a price. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then every Sunday, never do get any sense of being renewed in who they are in Christ because they're always conscious of who they used to be in Adam and not who they are in Christ right now. Now, I realize that there's a mixture in this room, that there are people who know Jesus and there are people who don't know Jesus. And so I, I, I really try to be clear and speak to that. But when only the only thing you ever get on a Sunday-by-Sunday -Sunday basis comes and it comes with sin consciousness, guess what you do? You go out and live out of that consciousness every day, every week, week after week after week. I've heard preachers say, are you going to sin a little bit every day? Well, you know... Yeah, that's probably going to be the, be the case, but you don't have to just begin from a place of celebrating it Amen. just to excuse it. Because I want you to realize this morning that, that, that God has saved me, He is saving me, and He will save me. And I don't do the same stuff I always did. If I am, I'm not saved. Amen. In Christ Jesus, what does that mean? When He was crucified... We were crucified with Him. When He was raised, when He was buried, we were buried with Him. When He was raised, we were raised up with Him. The Bible says in Ephesians that we were raised up together with Him and we've been made to sit down with Him in heavenly places. He ascended, He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and sat down and He is ruling next to His Father. That means that I'm sitting in the throne with Him right now. Some of you are going, you're out of your mind. No, I'm out of yours. I'm outside your mind because religion and sin consciousness preaching doesn't even know how to talk this way because they don't preach the Bible. I'll leave that alone. When Christ sat down on the heavenly throne, we sat down with Him, Ephesians 2.6, verse 2. Now I'm going to start hitting it quickly. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace very simply means the kindness of God toward undeserving people. That is me from the get-go. How you doing? Better than I deserve. In any stretch of the imagination, how am I doing? I'm doing better than I deserve. Thank God I didn't get what I deserved. Justice is getting what I deserve. Don't ever pray for justice. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But God didn't stop there by just canceling what was yours, what you deserved, giving you mercy, not applying it to you. Grace is so much bigger than that. Justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. But grace is getting what I never deserved. Did you hear that? Grace is getting the unsearchable riches of Christ, the wealth of the gospel, the outpouring of His presence and His power and His wisdom and His revelation and His knowledge and the mystery of His will and all of these things that are wrapped up in this beautiful passage of Scripture. Look with me to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. What tense is that? Past tense. Everybody say past. God has already provided for you everything that you will ever need. Well, that's just a little bit too good to be true. What do you mean? He's given it by grace. You take hold of it by faith. You have limitless wealth at your disposal. You can live like a pauper or you can realize that Jesus died and enforced his will to make you a rich man. And I'm talking about heavenly riches. I'm, not just, I'm also talking about some provision on this side. All right? 
He has blessed us, past tense. Look at your neighbor and tell him and say, you were born in a rich family. What do you think about that? Stop acting like a pauper. Stop talking pauper talk. Poverty. Now, I realize that just what I'm saying here this morning resembles some of this radical, you know, the, the TV preachers where, you know, they give you the idea that you won't ever have any problems and you'll just be, everybody's supposed to be a millionaire and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the prosperity of the Scripture, the prosperity of the gospel of God. He will make you rich in every kind of way. He who was rich became poor so that we might be made rich. You define rich. That's between you and God. And guess what? When you need some finances, that means it's going to cover some money too. Sometimes we so knee-jerk what we think is out of balance out there that we end up creating our own imbalance where we are. Man, that's good stuff right there. Every spiritual blessing God has already provided. The Apostle Peter grabbed this same idea in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said that we've been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Everybody say all things. I love it. Ephesus was considered the bank of Asia, remember? So we're going to the bank to make a withdrawal. It's been given to us by grace. We're on the account. Jesus has already signed it. It's a two-party check. He signed it. All you need to do is by faith put your name on the line and by faith take hold of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 4. We're going to talk about the architect and the general contractor and the foreman on the site and the tools and the materials. If you're taking notes, put this under the architect, God and Father. Architect is there. It's verses 4 through 6. This is what God the Father did. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Now there's the word. I know people are afraid of it. He chose us. The, 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 the Bible doctrine of election is all over the place. Uh, I, I, I realize that I'm probably already making some folks uncomfortable with it because we're going to get the next word that goes with it every time, and that's the word predestination. And I want to tell you, I don't back up from these passages. I preach them with the same level of passion that I do when I come across a whosoever will may come passage. We need to recognize that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both biblical doctrines that are all over the Bible. And I'm not going to be like one group is and emphasize this one and try to explain away that one. Nor am I going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum and, and emphasize and embrace this one and try to explain away that one. One seminary professor said it this way, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. Try to explain away election and you may lose your soul. The truth of the matter is Jesus looked at some disciples one day in John 15, 16 and he said, you boys didn't choose me, I chose you. God chose Israel from among the nations. Jesus chose disciples. It wasn't just kind of a, come on everybody who wants to, come, come be my disciple. He walked to them, up to them personally and he said, come follow me. We celebrate our, our personal choices in America and we, 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 we're thankful that we don't live in the day where we have arranged marriages and every man and woman in this room has the right and the prerogative to choose the spouse to whom they're going to say, I do and I will and they did and stay with them and love them. But isn't it amazing that we argue theologically and we don't want to let Jesus choose his own bride just like we all expect to be able to do ourselves. How much nonsense is that? God chose you before the foundation of the world, before you were ever a glimmer in your daddy's eye, before your mama ever thought about you, before your mama was even an egg in her mama. God wrote you into the plan. He chose you. Come on, somebody. I love it. Left to our own ways, no one seeks God. That's what Romans chapter 3 tells us. No one seeks after God. We don't even have the ability to seek Him until He first draws us by His power and His presence. Then we respond out of gratitude. Come on, somebody. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. There's that word folks are afraid of. it. Predestination just means marked out beforehand. And it's what God does among saved people. So don't get upset and think that I believe that there are people that God just makes up his mind and going to send them to hell because you don't find that. You won't find the Bible saying these people are predestined. Okay? 
predestination is something, it's a family secret. It's something that we realize once we've been made a part of it, then we look back and we say, oh my goodness, I didn't have anything to do with this. God is the one who did this. That's what makes it by grace. Are, are you getting anything out of this this morning? See, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, let me just stop right here and tell you that our Western idea of a compassionate father taking in a, child, a, a fatherless orphan has nothing to do with what Paul is saying here. The Western idea of going to uh, a home or to a, uh, a place and, and, and taking in out of compassion a child that is an orphan has nothing to do with the Bible word adoption. It's the Greek word weothesia. It literally means to place in the status or the standing of a full-grown son. You didn't enter the kingdom of God because God adopted you in the Western sense of the word or the definition while we think, or how we think of it here in the South, in the Western civilization. You were born into the family. You were born again. Do you not remember that? You cannot enter the kingdom of God except you be born again. You cannot even see the kingdom of God except you be born again. Born of the water and born of the spirit, Jesus said in John chapter 3. You didn't get adopted into this family. You were born, born, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Now I know that some of you are afraid to say amen because you've heard it preached that other way your whole life. And I'm sorry, but it's wrong. They've used our Western understanding of what adoption is and told us that's what God was doing. But what God was saying was He's taking people of His own family that are His children by birth, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. The DNA of God is inside you because you were born again. And guess what? Just the same way. None of you asked if you could be born into your family. You didn't have anything to do with it. As a smart aleck teenager at 15, I looked at my dad and said, I didn't ask to be born in this family. And he said, no, bless God, if you had, I'd have told you no. John 1, 11, 12, 13. He came into his own, his own received him not. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To them that believe on his name, that are born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of blood, but of the will of God. You were born by the will of God. What is that saying to you? There's something on the inside of you that can't quit. There's something on the inside of you that the, the world might try to take down and assassinate and destroy. It may even cut the head off. But let me tell you something. God says that you live forever. Help me. Help me, Jesus. All right, I got I to gotta roll. I'm already over. Let's just, let's just hit it. Here we go. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Bible says He's accepted us. How many of you thankful that you've been accepted? Amen. To translate it literally, He has begraced us in the Beloved. And the Beloved is Jesus. You are in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. God looks at you. He sees you in Christ. That's your status. No longer in Adam with death and sin, but you're in Christ. All right, verses 7 through 12. These are what the general contractor does. Write that there, verses 7 through 12. These are blessings from the Son. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Redemption literally means to be purchased and set free by paying a price. We were slaves. Slaves are poor. But we've been redeemed, and now we've been set as full sons. And sons are rich. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not a slave. Say, I'm a son. Say, I'm not poor anymore, but I'm rich in Christ. Forgiveness. I love this. Forgiveness means to carry away. It's the Jewish day of atonement, and the high priest is putting his hand on the head of a scapegoat and sending that goat into the wilderness, carrying the spoken sins of Israel over him, carrying it away for them to never see it again. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. This is where we in our culture have gotten the word scapegoat. He's the scapegoat with this company merger and that's going down. He's the, she's the scapegoat in this problem at, at your work. She got fired. Scapegoat is Leviticus 16. It's the idea that something has the sins and the penalty pronounced over them and they go into the wilderness and die with those sins on them. Aren't you thankful that Jesus sent a scapegoat into the wilderness with your sins? Guess what? His name is Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is your scapegoat. 
He's your way out. Come on, this is good stuff. Anybody get anything out of it? Verse 8. He lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. I love this. God has revealed His will to us. He's, he's made known to us the mystery of His will. Greek word mysterion. It's not an eerie, weird, strange, esoteric kind of thing. But it, the, the word mysterion very simply means a sacred secret. Everybody say sacred secret. So these are family secrets that God is sharing with us through the Apostle Paul. That God before the foundation of the world wrote you into the plan. Jesus came in history and time and paid the price. And now the Holy Spirit in time and into the future, is going to be doing the finishing work of the job foreman on the site of your life. Come on, somebody. That's the plan. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's pulling this all together in Jesus Christ. There'll come a time in the world where every knee will bow, every tongue confess things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will come a time when the whole world will worship and bow at His feet and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I long for that day. Verse 11, In whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His own will. Man, you can't get around these sovereign words of a God who is ordering your life, who's numbered the hairs of your head, who, who gives you the breath in your lungs that you breathe this morning. You are here because God let you be here. You are alive right now, walking in the grace and the mercy of God. You're hearing the gospel. Right now, because God's blessing is on your life. Do you hear me? A better translation is, not only have we obtained an inheritance, but we have been made an inheritance. We have an inheritance, glorious riches in Christ, but we are an inheritance. And that's going to get plain in just a moment, okay? Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, here we go with the foreman on the job site. 13 through about 13 and 14. So write that in, verses 13 and 14. These are the blessings of the Holy Spirit. This is what He's doing in your life. Look at this. In Him, talking about in Christ still, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now Paul is just telling you right there how you become a saint. You hear the gospel, you believe in it, and guess what happens? When you believe, you get a seal on you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? This is how they became saints. They heard the word of truth, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. They heard the gospel, they believed in Him in faith. You are sealed. When God seals you with something, it is a mark of ownership. Everybody say, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. By the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's ownership. It's security. It's protection. It's the mark of authenticity. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. I love it. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? Don and Anita Bell are both real estate agents. This, this word here is earnest. They sit down with people on a regular basis and they show them houses. And when buyers connect with sellers through agents like Don and Anita, the buyer has to put down earnest money. That's exactly what this is. It's a financial term. We see it right here. Who is the guarantee of your inheritance? The earnest for a new house is the $500 or $1,000 or whatever you agree on saying that I'm going to finish paying the rest. This is the first installment. This is... This is just the beginning of it, and at which time I take possession of it, you will get the rest of it. What is God saying to us? He's saying that, guess what? Now as believers, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Ghost of God is the earnest. It is the inheritance. What you got is only the first installment. Can you imagine how great this is going to be when we get all the rest of it? The earnest of our inheritance. It's the down payment. It's the guarantee that you're going to get the rest 
God has put His Holy Spirit on the inside of you. I love that. Quickly, the tools and the materials. Verse 15. Are you getting anything out of this? For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You will never go wrong by taking one of the prayers of Paul and praying it over your life, praying it over your children, praying it over your families. God, I thank you for my son Drew and my daughter Abby, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give them the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. Why does God want you? Look at, look at this. Run, run ahead with me, please, to verse 17. That the God of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Next. Look at this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Read the next four words for me. That you may know. God wants you to know. He wants you to have knowledge because you can die a pauper and be a rich man the same way Hetty Green was. You, you, you can die living so far underneath your privilege. You can go to heaven. You can know Jesus is your Savior. But you can never understand the, the unsearchable riches of Christ until you begin to dig in and that you may know. What the Bible says, knowing God is salvation, John 17. It says, this is eternal life, that you may know Him in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So knowing God is salvation. Knowing God increasingly is sanctification. He's doing a work of setting me apart. Knowing God perfectly finally is when I will see Him and I will be glorified. I will be like Him, the Bible says, because I will see Him as He is. That's past, present, and future. Look at this. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? This right here, this right here is a whole sermon in itself. Say those last words. Glorious inheritance in the saints. Can you imagine that Jesus Himself has an inheritance? And I'm looking at it this morning. It's you. It's us. If we can ever get a picture of who we are as a new creation and stop this impoverished kind of low down, no good, nothing but a worm kind of talk, you're the inheritance of Christ. That's what He died for. Psalm 2 verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That's what Jesus came for, to claim His inheritance. And I'm looking at the inheritance of Christ this morning. Jesus is not interested in silver and gold. He made it all. He's interested in people. He's interested in you and what's broken in your life right now. He wants to see you set free, no longer a slave, but placed as a full-grown son. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. <laughs> Wrapping it up. And he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Power that can't even be measured. And who's getting it? Us who believe. According to the working of His great might. If I were to take time, this is another message all in itself, because there are four different Greek words that all speak of power there. Dunamis, like dynamite. Energeia, like energy. This thing's working on the inside of you. His might, His power, His strength. The Apostle Paul is just flat laying it out there going, guys, you have unsearchable riches and you have immeasurable power in Christ. You have no reason to be living like a slave. You are a, you're to be a rich son and daughter of God. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Let's, let's, I know where I'm trying to finish, but let's don't miss this. The immeasurable power that God says is in you is the same power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Well, Pastor, you just don't know what I'm going through right now. You don't know what I fought to get here to church today, this morning. You just can't imagine what's happening at my work. You don't know what I'm struggling with my kids. Well, you know what? You can sit around and look for a free clinic and lose a leg like Hetty Green's son did. Or you can... Rise up and go, wait a minute. I was born into a family with limited wealth and resources and immeasurable power. It's given to me by grace. i got to find out how I can release some faith and get a hold of some of this stuff. Because God has called me to be victorious even in the middle of the stuff, even in the middle of the struggle that I'm in. Finishing, last three verses. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
there ain't nothing you can name that Jesus doesn't cap it, that Jesus isn't greater than. The name of Jesus is higher than bankruptcy. The name of Jesus is higher than cancer. The name of Jesus is higher than divorce. The name of Jesus is higher than drug addiction. The name of Jesus is higher than whatever the struggle that you're facing this morning. The name of Jesus is higher than someone who's wounded you in indescribable terms. The name of Jesus is higher than, than, than abuse. The name of Jesus is higher than lost. Whatever your circumstance is this morning, he's sitting far above. It's underneath his feet. 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What I'm trying to show you is this head of this body is so amazing and so wonderful. His name is Jesus. There's nothing I can do that would wound or hurt him, but we can wound our understanding of who the head is and where the head is. This, he's the head, we're the body. Do you know that you can have a brain injury and it can paralyze the rest of your body because something that does impacts the head? Now, the head is fine. He's seated in the heavenly places this morning, but guess what? You are too. You just don't know it. You didn't know that. No, you said, no, I'm sitting on a black chair in a room watching a sweaty fat man talk to me about the book of Ephesians. No, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places right now. What God began in eternity past, He appropriated Jesus comes along and he acquires it. He pays for it. Then the Holy Spirit gets involved and he applies it into your life. But it started way back in eternity past when the Father looked on you with love and he lavished his love on you before you were ever even a thought in anybody's mind. And the Father looked and he says, I choose. He knew your name before you were born. He knows what you're struggling with right now. And Jesus had you in mind when he hung on the cross. What the Father appropriated, Jesus acquired. He bought it. He paid the price for it. Now this morning in this room, in this place, as I close this service right now, the Spirit of God who's been moving and working and talking to you and nudging you is walking the aisles of this church and He's doing the work of applying what the Father in eternity past appropriated and what the Son 2,000 years ago paid for. Right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed.